right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, we're going to start in chapter 8. We'll cover chapter 8 and about half of chapter 9 um, this morning. And we're going to see the final part of God's reversal. Um, so th- this, this is kind of the three-part uh, phase of God's plan to, 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 to kind of get back at Haman for all that he had done. Uh, and, and remember, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, you know, Haman... He wanted to have Mordecai executed. Well, instead, he had to honor him and, and celebrate him. And then, you know, he wanted to have all the Jews killed. And instead, Haman himself was killed uh, on the same gallows that he prepared to kill Mordecai. And now, if you'll remember, Haman, before he had died, had made a, an edict that went out in the name of the king, according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, that all Jews on a certain day could be killed. Anybody that killed them could take all their property and all their possessions. And so that's kind of the, 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 the boat that launched this whole problem and, and how we find Esther where she is now. One thing that I will say is that sometimes it is difficult for us to read an Old Testament story and see the New Testament implications. Sometimes it's easy. The Exodus, uh, the, you know, the Passover, there's some things you can see and you say, oh yeah, I definitely see how this correlates. So how does this correlate? Because with what we're going to see today, kind of a spoiler alert, is that the Jews do get their revenge instead of being killed, you know, kind of a wholesale slaughter, destroy, annihilate, all those words that Haman himself used, they destroy and annihilate their enemies to the tune of like 75,000 people in one day. So this is a big deal. So how do we look at this as an Old Testament passage, but in a New Testament context, how do we take, uh, you know, a, a story, how do we take a message from this? So today as we read this passage, we're going to be looking at a pretty intense encounter. And what we're going to be trying to find is that God is a deliverer. No matter what the circumstances and no matter what way that God delivers, He is a deliverer. Um, and so as we look at this, you know, we live in the, um, in the, in the, t- the teachings of Jesus according to Jesus' ethic. And so probably... I'm not going to say never, because as soon as you say never, it's something that we have to go do. But probably God will not have us go kill 75,000 people. That would not fall in line with everything else that God has had us do in the past in following Christ and being obedient to Him. It's probably not going to happen. Um, But what we will see is that we will be in troubled situations, difficult circumstances, and God will deliver us in some way. So this is the final scene in the Lord's reversal of all that Haman had done. Uh, against the Jews. Now, I will say that Haman, although he's dead, his evil continues to extend. And we're going to see that in just a minute um, because in this passage, I'm going to have to read all ten of his son's names and only an evil person would name their son some of these words that take up half a line all by themselves. Um, But that's definitely one thing that he did. I think you'd have to be a Persian scholar to get it right. Um, I'm not that. I will just go ahead and admit that. The sermon in the sentence is this. The Lord never forgets his people, and he always delivers victory. So I'm going to read to you Esther chapter 8, um, all the way down through Esther chapter 9, verse 19. That'll be where we're going. So on that day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. That day is the day that they killed Haman. So it was on that day that he transferred the property, uh, the enemy of the Jews. (coughs) And Mordecai came before the king... For Esther had told what, she, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave uh, it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, 
She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to advert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, the, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eye, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agite, um, the son of Hamaditha, which uh, he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's, sign with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and to the governors of the officials, or and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding the swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews uh, who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, Urged, the, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which uh, is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reversal or the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm. 
and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, from, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those whom, who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also, they also killed, from verse 6 down through verse 9, it says the names of Haman's sons. Verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamaditha, uh, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And the very day, uh, the number of those killed in Susa, the city deal, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, uh, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in, who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns um, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts for food to one another. A very good time to travel to Israel is in the spring, a little bit later spring. Um, it, it's a time when the weather is just right. They're kind of coming out of winter. Things are beginning to bloom. It, it's a pretty time to go. Amanda and I got the chance to go several years ago. Uh, but what we didn't realize is that it is actually during that time is the festival or the feast that they call Purim, which is based out of the book of Esther. And so we, you know, flew from, I guess, Atlanta to, to New York, to, to the JFK airport there, and that was all fine and good. And then once we got on the, on the airplane at the JFK, it was a Tel Aviv airliner. So it was an Israeli airliner that was taking us across. And there were, I mean, just, just bunches and bunches of uh, people going to Israel to celebrate the Feast of Purim. You had guys that looked kind of like rabbis, you know, they had the, the curly hairs. They had... You know how you're allowed to have one carry-on to go on a plane? Well, they had a carry-on that wasn't apparently a carry-on because they could have this, and it was just a box for their hat. Like their hat had its own box. And then they had a bag full of all the little garments that they would put on themselves when they were going to pray, which was going to happen every couple of hours. 
So whether the seatbelt light was on or not, then they were going to get up and they were going to get dressed in all their little garb and they were going to pray during that time, no matter what the stewards or stewardess were telling them to do. It was an interesting time. We get over there and we find out that it is the, the Feast of Purim. And so the way they celebrate it now, um, in name only, or I guess indeed only, it's kind of like our Halloween. Uh, they dress up, not as ghouls and goblins, but they dress up. Uh, in different costumes and things, and they go around giving small gifts to one another. And this is in memory of this deliverance that the people had against the, their enemies in Persia, because it began to be a practice and, and something that they that they continued to do when they were in uh, when they came back to Palestine. So it's just an interesting kind of background to that. Um, but as we look at this, we know that that Esther or Mordecai has now been saved from Haman. Uh, and Esther is safe from Haman as well because he's dead. But the Jews at large, they're still under this edict. You see, Haman had issued an edict that on the 13th day of Adar, that all the Jews could be killed. People could rise up and kill them all. Well, no matter where the Jews went, so long as they weren't, you know, really troubled a whole lot, they were usually wealthy. And so this was kind of a two-part deal. Not only could they kill the Jews, but they could take all their money. And so that's what made the Jews in, in so much of a stir was the fact that they were going to be killed on this one day. It was going to be open season on them on that one day. So when Haman is dead, the whole plot is, is, is revealed. Then you have Esther come back to the king to begin to talk. So one of the major ideas that we learn from Esther is that God can always reverse the fortunes of his people. Before Esther and Mordecai begin to act, before this kind of plays out, it looks like all of them are going to die, but then God changes things. And so that's just a lesson for us to learn. If you start asking the question, what can we pull out of a passage like this where so many people die? One thing that we can pull out of this is the fact that God can reverse any situation, no matter how desperate, no matter how bad, God can reverse any situation. Now, Haman had been second in command of the king. So that, uh, that brought power, that brought influence, that brought wealth. Um, and it's very likely that he never imagined that he could lose everything in the blink of an eye. But not only um, did, did he lose everything, but he lost his life. Uh, all of his possessions were forfeit. Um, this means that uh, his wife and his sons would be homeless and poor because of the actions of their father. So Haman, when, when, when he, you know, his plot is revealed and he falls out of favor with the king, yes, he is executed, but it has ramifications for his wife and sons as well. Remember a few passages ago when Haman was sitting around telling his wife how many sons he had, which seems a little um, uh, pointless, but anyway, so he was telling his wife all of this, and then now he's lost all of this as well. It was a Persian custom. Uh, for the properties of a condemned criminal to become the possession of the king. So Xerxes gives Haman's properties to Esther and to Mordecai, or Esther puts Mordecai over these properties. Now, right away, Mordecai probably doesn't become second in command of the king, but that is coming. But he immediately gains that power and prestige because that was, that was the house of Haman, who was the second in command. So it was a powerful position. It was a position that gave Mordecai the kind of influence he was going to need. As we see, as we read this passage, people began to be afraid of Mordecai because of the power that he had. Um, so he receives that power uh, because the king actually gives him the signet ring. And so he can speak and act in the name of the king. This is a pretty powerful uh, transition, a pretty powerful reversal from his enemy to him being in that same position of power. And so there are 
there have already been several really great reversals uh, in this story, but we're about to discover that God has saved this, his grandest reversal, the reversal for all the Jews. He saved that to the end of this story. So Esther once again approaches the king. She, we find her um, bowing before the king, requesting once again an audience with him. And once again, he reaches out his scepter and allows her to, um, allows her to speak. So she humbly requests that the king make a way for the lives of her people to be saved. We don't know how much she knew about politics and how much she knew about Persian law, um, but no law of the Medes and Persians could be repealed. Once it was given, once it was in the name of the king, it could not be repealed. So the king did the next best thing by allowing Mordecai to craft an additional law. This is one of the things that we, we need to at least look at just a moment. Once a king in, in, in the Persian Empire made a law or allowed somebody to make a law in his name, it could never be changed. We need to look at laws because laws made by man can never supersede God's plan. It, it just never can. And so just Biblical Ethics 101, if you are in a situation where you are forced to either choose God and obey God or obey mankind, you always obey God. That is a time where it is perfectly holy and righteous to, to have some civil disobedience, at least enough to, dis, to, to do what God is commanding you to do. That doesn't mean, you know, form a rebellion and go after, you know, Joe Biden. That just means when a law of mankind contradicts the law of God, you choose the law of God, no matter who made the other law. That's, that's the important thing here. And so for these men, they had made these laws that they said, you can't break these laws, can't, can't revoke these laws, even though it's an evil law. Are there evil laws on the book in America? Absolutely there are evil laws on the books in America. Should they be repealed? Yes. But if, and we may not have the political authority to do that, but if we are faced with those laws, we still must obey God, no matter the cost or consequences. So um, this law that Mordecai writes would actually allow the Jews to defend themselves on the day that Haman had appointed for destruction. So Haman had said on this one day, the 13th of Adar, he had cast, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily lots, um, but it was pure, P-U-R, and so that's where the Jews get the name of the feast, Purim. He, he had cast these pure until he had finally got to the, the day that seemed most favorable, which was the 13th day of, of, of um, Adar, the last month. And this is in the Jewish calendar, but it's kind of in the spring of the year for us. And so this was also coinciding with Passover, a time when God had already protected and delivered his people once before. And so it was kind of like the early foreshadowing that God would protect his people. And so he had chose this day. And on this day, if you were an enemy of the Jew, and I'm sure he had people that he had commanded, you're an enemy of the Jew now. <coughs> but also, there were people who just hated the Jews. Or they saw how wealthy they were and they wanted, a, you know, they wanted their possessions. And so they were going to rise up and they were going to kill the Jews. There'd be no prosecution. It wouldn't be a crime. And then they could take everything that the Jews had and, and possess that for themselves. Well, what Mordecai does is writes a law that is almost identical, except instead of enemies of the Jews, it was the Jews themselves. They could defend themselves, they could, they could destroy, they could kill, they could annihilate. They could even take all of the people's possessions. All of that was within this law. 
And then every advantage possible was given to Mordecai to ensure that these laws got out in a timely manner. So the scribes of the kings came in so they could write it. Um, this was kind of like bringing in a couple of lawyers to read it and make sure it's foolproof at this point. But also, they were given the fastest horses in all the kingdom to get this message out. So Mordecai was actually recognized as a man of great power in Persia. So when this edict reached the Jews uh, in the provinces of Persia, they began to celebrate because they knew this was their answer. This was what they wanted. It came with the authority of the king himself, but they knew that Mordecai had written it. So it was very, very um, um, solid. It was something that they could celebrate. So this reversal was so powerful that many people began to convert to Judaism. Right there at the end of chapter 8, it says, And in every province and in every city, everywhere the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Um, and then at the very end it says, And many of the people in the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is not necessarily if you can't beat them, join them, but it is... Once you have seen this, once you have seen what God can do for His people, you want to be His people. You want to be a part of His people. This is actually backed up in the New Testament in terms of what happens because many of the places that Paul and the other missionaries journey throughout this same area, what is modern-day Turkey and into even into the Greek regions, they found a bunch of Greeks, or what they called Greeks, that were God-fearers. They knew the Word of God. They believed in God. They just needed the next piece of the puzzle, which was Jesus, in order to kind of complete that. So, many of the dramatic things that we read about in the New Testament are done so that God's glory can be revealed to the people of the world. You think about the Exodus for a minute. Could God not have just taken his people and allowed them to leave uh, Egypt uh, kind of quietly under the shadow of night? Yes, absolutely. But he made a scene. He made a major scene so that everybody would see his glory, would see his power, and then they would begin to recognize who he was. We can name a lot of other stories that, that, that kind of go along the same line where there was, there was a way that it could have been done, but God did it in the most glorious and most you know, out there and, and public ways so that people would see his glory, recognize him for who he is. This is what's happened in the book of Esther. Did you know the power of God in our lives can have the same effect on the people around us. Sometimes God's going to miraculously deliver us or do something amazing in our lives. And then sometimes we're going to have to go through difficult circumstances, but God's going to give us a strength that people just don't have. God's going to help us to walk through those challenging situations in a way that we, we can show our lives, our strength, the, the faith that we have as a testimony to God, and it will turn people to Him. As long as it's just some man standing up behind a pulpit talking about Jesus is good, not many people are going to listen. But when it is lived out, when people see it in intensive care waiting rooms, when people see it in funeral homes, when people see it in their job, in their workplace, when people see it in the real world, lived out, believing in God, a fearless faith, that's when people will turn. That's when people will believe. That's what changed the people's hearts in, in Persia was they saw what God could do to preserve his people. And they said, well, we definitely want to be for them and not against them. And so they began to convert. And so we need to realize that when people see the power of God in our lives, they will make the same choices that they can turn and follow him. So chapter 9 kind of details the Lord's reversal, the way that God kind of changed things. Um, so... The Jews, when Mordecai sends out his edict, the Jews have a little over nine months uh, to prepare their defense after the edict of Mordecai. 
So we know that the people that were planning on killing the Jews were probably preparing. It talks about armed forces. We're not just talking about you know, an angry mob. We're probably talking about some kind of organized, maybe some mercenaries or some people that had fought in wars in the past. We're talking about some powerful people. But the Jews had some time to prepare as well. So when the day comes, they were organized and no one could stand against them. Now, as you read scripture, you become familiar with some of the things that said that no one could stand against them um, in, in that day. One thing that, that tends to happen is that God puts a panic in the enemies of his people. That panic it makes it to where they can't fight. Um, that panic, we see it in Jericho when the walls fell down, the people couldn't fight, they, they, they just panicked and, and God's people kind of descended on them and, and the slaughter began. Well, that's another thing, that's another situation like this right here where the Jews actually, they didn't have to have the best army, the best weapons, the best armor, all those things because the people were panicked. They couldn't stand against the Jews. They could not fight. They could not, they couldn't find their backbone, so to speak. So, we're even told that the Persian officials, like the, the satraps and the governors and all those uh, royal agents and things like that, they actually helped the Jews because they were afraid of Mordecai. Well, ultimately, Mordecai had no power that God had not given him, so they were afraid of God, but for them in their minds, it was Mordecai, it was his power, so they were afraid because he had become a great man. So what we read is that in the capital city, the Jews killed 500 people that wanted to harm them, including the ten sons of Haman. And so we know that if Haman died because of his grudge or his, his, his dispute with Mordecai, that his sons would have wanted to pick up that torch and, and they would have wanted to get revenge. And so most likely they were fighters. They were combatants against the Jews um, and certainly they lost their lives because of it. And one thing that we should notice is that although they were entitled to the property and, and, and the plunder of, of everyone that they had killed, the Jews did not loot the dead men's property. They didn't take anything from them. That's an important point there just to notice the way that they conducted themselves, the character that they had. So the king's astounded to find out what's going on. You know, they killed 500 people in, just in Susa, the capital city. How many more did they kill across the land? Well, Esther says, let's just extend this for one more day. Let's just see if we can do even better. Um, but what they find out is that they had killed 75,000 people across the land. Now, it is also important to note, only the people that sought to hurt the Jews were killed. These were people that arose up, they had, they had, they had brandished swords, they had, they, they'd come after the Jews. Those were the people that were killed. And none of their things, none of their stuff, none of their possessions were actually taken. That's important. It's really important that we know that because that's the way that the Jews handled this. This was a righteous way to handle this. God delivered them. They didn't, they didn't seek to get more wealthy than they, than they, than they were or more, more than they, they deserved. They just simply took what the Lord was giving them in that time. So after these events, the Jews began to celebrate, and this celebration became a Jewish holiday that is still celebrated today. So that's kind of, that kind of wraps up the reversal. The next chapter or so tells us about Purim, like more of the details about it, and it tells us a little bit about Mordecai and what he became. So we'll kind of cover that next week. Um, but I just kind of wanted to finish up by talking about the fact that we must trust in the Lord. So when we read about thousands of people dying, it's hard for us to see the glory of the Lord. You look at that story, so many people were killed. It almost doesn't seem real. We, we live in America. It's been a very long time since there's been war on the streets. But can you imagine, can you imagine if there was an edict that went out that said the fourth Sunday in December, is that what we are on now? The fourth Sunday in December, 
Anybody in America can go to a church and kill any Christian they want to kill. Can you imagine what that would look like in America? How, how many people do you think would show up? How many people do you think would show up here? Hopefully not many, right? We probably could handle that. What about, a, what about some of the bigger cities? What about some of the places you, you might say, in Birmingham even? How many people do you think would show up there? What about places like New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles? How many people would show up? What, what would it look like to have that kind of violence and that kind of death on the streets? It's difficult for us to, to relate to, to what was going on at that time. Is this, a, is this a vicious and violent passage? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. But it's also important for us to understand justice from God's point of view. The people who lost their lives in this story were the same ones who would have murdered the Jews and stole their possessions. This would have happened. It actually happened in Russia multiple times in the 1800s. If you want to go back and study a little bit of history in Russia, this is before the communists. This was during the czars. This was during the Romanov dynasty. There were several times that they, they had these days, like, like purge days, where you could go and you could kill Jews, take all of their possessions. If the Jews had been allowed to defend themselves, maybe it would have been different, but they weren't allowed to organize, they weren't allowed to defend themselves. It's like the reverse of the story of Esther, all the bad and none of the good. That actually happened. <coughs> it was a thing throughout Europe from basically 1600 through the, the, the middle 1800s, and people were getting enlightened. They were thinking about freedom and, and all those kinds of things, but yet they didn't mind killing the Jews. So these things have happened. It has occurred. But in this particular case, God chose to deliver his people in a physical and visible way. Something that people knew this was the hand of the Lord. God does not ignore sin. He never does. We've talked about this in a couple of sermons recently. And he especially is especially responsive to those committed against him and his people. Does that mean that God immediately strikes down anyone that kills a Christian? No. It doesn't mean that he immediately strikes down anyone that kills a Jew. But God knows. He will not ignore it. And he is responsive to that kind of sin. He will respond. He will, he will engage that kind of sin at some point. So we must remember that Scripture says God will not be mocked. How many times do you think people mock God on a daily basis? We live in a very secular society, a very sophisticated society, civilized society, scientific society. People mock God all the time. They say that, that he's not real. They say they've got scientific explanations for everything the Bible says. Well, just because you can explain it doesn't mean God didn't do it. The reality is, God is patient, but he will respond to these things. There will come a day when he sets things right. He sets the record straight. So, people think they can hurt God's people, but he will deliver victory to his people, and he will deliver justice to his enemies. What is justice? What is justice? We've heard that term a lot in the last couple of years. People call, calling out for justice and, 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 and things to be done right. Justice is criminals are punished. Lawbreakers are punished. That's what justice really is. I mean, when you get right down to it, and those that were going to break God's law, thou shalt not murder, 
they were the ones that received justice that day because they themselves were killed. What we have to understand is that God's justice is different than man's justice. Man's justice still seeks to placate, it, it wants to placate people, it wants to satisfy people. It is that people-pleasing justice because it's almost always distributed by politicians. In what world does that make sense? People that are there because of your votes are the ones that get to decide what's just and what's fair and what's right. Makes no sense whatsoever because they're just going to give some people what they want, the powerful people what they want, and that's going to continue to perpetuate their power and their position. But what God's justice is, is that those that break laws are punished. That's his justice, plain and simple. And those that are wronged, they are repaid. Things are changed for them. Their lives are transformed for the better because they have been treated poorly. We can trust God and his timing even when we do not understand our circumstances. Now, we must remember that we are New Testament Christians. Don't wait for there to be an edict that goes out in America that says Christians can kill their enemies. That's probably not going to happen. Again, not saying never, that's probably not going to happen. God delivers us in many different ways. We are assured of eternal victory in Jesus Christ. In fact, the victory is already won. That is a granted and a guarantee. We have that. But there's also coming a day when the Lord will intervene against those who want to harm his enemy or harm his people. We have all of that written down in the book of Revelation and in Daniel. All of that is recorded. What God will do to set the record straight. If you've ever had trouble reading Revelation and saying, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God do this? Why would this kind of harm and this kind of judgment be poured out on the world? Look at what this world has done to God. Look at what this world has done to God's people. Look at how this world treats God's people, how this world ignores God's word. How this world, although it is sinful and it is in need of salvation, God sent salvation to us in the form of Jesus Christ, this world has rejected that. Then you begin to understand why God pours out his judgment. If you will not take forgiveness when it is given, you're going to take justice when, when it is issued. That's just the way of it. God has offered forgiveness for anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, but those that reject it, they receive justice, and that is God's justice. But here's what we have to understand. Regardless of how our victory is given, if God does it in a visible way so that he receives glory, or it's the invisible or the eternal, however it is given, we know who gives us the victory. We know that it is God. So you read a book like Esther. You look at Esther and you never see God's name written in the book. But we know God gave victory to the Jews. We know that God delivered Esther and Mordecai and all of their kinsfolk. We know that. And so when we live in our lives today, there's not a Paul or a Matthew or a Luke recording everything and explaining how God's done this and God's done this and, and giving us the narration of our lives so that we know what God's done. But we know God's active. We know that he's at work. And what I want to challenge each and every one of us with is that we look at our lives and we see what God's doing. See what He's really already done. See the victories that He's given us. It will improve our ability to offer thanks to Him. But it will also hopefully strengthen our faith as we realize there's no logical reason this should be. Many of you in this room are probably in, in much better shape, at least for, for the rest of your lives, than you were when you were younger. God has provided for you in many ways. And we might say, well, we, we made our own way, but God opened doors. God blessed. God provided. God made that way. 
Were there people in your life that stood against you? Were there people in your life that doubted you? Were there people in your life that said you'll never, you'll never make it, you should give up? Maybe there were, maybe there weren't. But what I can tell you is that God has brought you where you are today. And He will continue to bring you. We must trust in Him. His deliverance is different in every situation, but He will deliver victory in every situation. So let, let's trust in Him. Let's go into this new year, 2022. 2020 is hindsight, whatever, 2021, no joke about that. But 2022, we're going into a new year. We're thinking about the reality that God's going to bring some kind of victory in our lives. It's easier to go through the hard times when you know good times are coming. It, it is. It always is. And so I promise you, based on the promises in Scripture, that God will bring good times. So whatever you're going through now, trust in Him. Depend on Him. And in the right time, His time, He'll bring about deliverance. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for the promises that are in Your Word. As we look at the story of Esther, the things that happen in her lifetime, it definitely uh, challenges us because it seems as if Esther and Mordecai lived in a world a lot like ours. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have some of the advantages that maybe the Jews living in Palestine had. Uh, in fact, they didn't even have the advantages that we do of a full Bible. But they trusted you. They depended on you and you did not fail them. And Lord, we know that you will never fail us. And it gives us a reason to sing and a reason to rejoice. So Father, this morning I pray as we walk out of here, we walk out of here knowing that you have already won the victory and you will grant it to us in different ways at different times. Help us to understand and accept our circumstances because we know that you are in control. We trust you. We love you. And Lord, we want to share you with everybody that we meet in this world. I pray that our lives are a testimony to those around us. Those that might would be our enemies, I pray that they become our brothers and sisters in Christ because of the faith that they see lived out in our lives. And we will give you all glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.